The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the chance to gather here to hear you speak to us, and we ask you then, do speak, please. Draw together our attention scattered as it may be the hundred things we brought in our minds and hearts this morning. Will you, will you draw us to focus and then will you speak in ways that we can hear and in ways that, that produce change, that grow us towards you, that bring from our lives honor to you and grow up in our lives good and blessing for us and for others around us. We look to you for that. We ask you for it. Pray that you give clarity to my words here this morning and clarity to our listening. And teach us, please, build your church. Thank you for the passage before us. Help us to understand it and apply it and grow from it. And pray this in your name, Lord. Thank you. Amen. A number of years ago, I was on the staff of a church where we featured the word grace very prominently in a lot of our foundational documents. We use it in our, our speech often. Grace was very important to us as a church, as it should be. And so it got everyone's attention when one Sunday the pastor of the church, with a bit of obvious frustration, blurted out, man, we have got to erase the word grace from our vocabulary. We've got to strike it out of our, all of our documents. It is such a huge problem. You hear that, and you kind of like look sideways at the pastor and say, you know, come again? What do you mean? And what he was getting at, obviously in his moment of exasperation, was something we've probably all seen, regrettably. The tendency in some Christian circles, and you could probably put Christian in quotes there, air quotes, the tendency in some Christian circles to think and to act as if one can do or say any such thing you please as long as at the end of it you tack on the word grace and then you can expect and even demand that everyone around you is going to let it all slide, going to be good with it all. Grace, in that understanding, is the gigantic Christian get-out-of-jail-free card. It's the Christian license to sin or at least the license to have each one of us individually and personally decide for ourselves what is and isn't sin, what standard we will hold to, what we will be under Christian freedom, under grace, what we will be about. That is not what true grace actually is, of course. But it's a common distortion and misuse of the idea and one that must be eliminated if we hope to experience a life of blessing that comes from the true gospel of true grace. Which is the reason that Jude wrote this short book that we just started looking at last week. As we consider Jude verses 1 and 2, we, we found there in the beginning a common letter opening. Every letter began something like this. But as is often the case in the Bible, the, the letter opening is turned just a little bit to kind of prepare us for what's coming. And what we saw there 
was him laying out for us a statement about our Christian identity. Who we are as Christians is determined by what God has done from outside of us, on us, for us. We are his servants, first and foremost. We are called and therefore beloved and kept. As we saw then, that's who we are in Christ, and living that out then, embracing that, walking in that, leads us to the type of experience life that we all long for. It's a life of mercy and peace and love multiplied. That's where we want to live, and that's, that's where Jude starts us. And, and then he quickly moves to the, the single main point of his letter, a call to action paired with an important alert, a warning about what we should not embrace and not live in. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let me read the passage. This is Jude, verses 3 and 4. Then I'll draw two observations from them. Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We'll stop there this week, Jude 3 and 4. Draw two observations from those verses. The first one is the main one, the longer one. Here it is. We must contend for the true gospel of grace. We must contend for the true gospel of grace. Verse 3 begins, Beloved, recalling for us what we saw last week in verses 1 and 2, God is looking at us as his loved ones. We be loved by him. And Jude writes from that very same perspective with the same attitude and he's writing to us because there is an unexpected problem that he wants to alert us to and help us deal with. Jude says he was intending to write a very different letter. In fact, he had eagerly started that, but then he must have heard something from someone about something that was going on, and he realized, and this is the middle of verse 3, he became concerned and was compelled then to write a letter of exhortation of earnest appeal, calling the church to rise up and fight. This is an appeal then to contend for the faith, the faith, as in the Christian message or the gospel, the good news, which is a body of information. So we're not, we're not talking about faith as in trusting, we're talking about the faith as in a body of information about what God has done to save a people for himself, what God has done, not a, a recipe about what we are supposed to do. It's a message of information about what God has done to save a people for himself by grace, by undeserved, unearned favor. This faith is a message of grace from start to finish. Briefly, you could put it like this. God saves us from the penalty of sin in Jesus' death on the cross for our sin. We are atoned for. 
by grace. Not anything we deserved or anything we did. And then God is saving. So he saved us from the, the penalty of sin, and now he is saving us from the power of sin. Daily sanctifying us. That's the word we often use in church. To, to sanctify us. Giving us the power of his spirit living within us. Giving. That's grace. Giving his spirit in us to, to open our eyes to the promises that he gives us. That's grace. Giving promises. He gives us his spirit to show us his promises. And then he moves us by changing our hearts to trust him. And instead of the promises of the world, to trust him. And that then draws us on after him and makes us new, increasingly like Christ, increasingly righteous. He saved us and is saving us all by grace. And one day he will come and save us from the very presence of sin. He takes us to heaven by grace. All of that, all of God's saving work for us is the message of God's grace not by anything we have done. None of us can boast. That's it, kind of in a nutshell. The gospel of God's grace in Christ. You could, obviously, we could say a whole lot more about that. A lot more details could be put in there, but that's the faith. And it's a message, news that was delivered, he says, once for all to the saints. Not made up and created by the saints. It was from outside of us, given to us. And it cannot be changed then as our culture changes. It doesn't get modernized or reworked as the world turns. When Jesus and then his apostles right after him delivered to, that is taught to the earliest Christians and those folks then became Christians and the church began, those first followers of Messiah Jesus, it was once for all delivered to them, given and not given anymore which means it's here with us. It sits here with us, recorded in this Bible that has not been changed since the first century when it was first given to the saints. This is the faith. This is the book that records the faith and always has since it was delivered to the church. Formed the church, in fact unchanged and unchanging since then. So what that means is that any new message that would come on after the first century, come on after the Bible, isn't the faith. Is not the gospel. Isn't the true gospel of good news. The faith exists. And they understood that. And we may need to hear that now. We may need to kind of like process some of that ourselves, and certainly our culture needs to hear that. But they got that, and that's not exactly then Jude's main point. His main point is that this faith has to be fought for. That's what he's getting at. He urges them to fight for the one true, once-given faith. Inside the church. All throughout this letter, I mean, we'll, we'll spend some time looking through Jude, and this is perhaps easy to forget, so I'll say it and probably say it again several times, but all throughout this letter, this fight has nothing at all to do with anything going on out there. 
it is assumed that everyone out there completely disagrees with the faith. That's a given. That's not good, but it's a given, and it's okay in that sense. This is a fight about something inside the church. Verse 4, why do we have to fight for this gospel? For because certain people have crept in unnoticed inside the walls of the city of God. In, in here. He calls them certain people because they would have been known by, by Jude's audience. He, they know who he's talking about. Probably some traveling teachers or prophets. It was very common in the first century we actually saw it in the book of 2 Corinthians. Traveling teachers and prophets, common phenomena, they would stop in at local churches. They would help them by teaching them and guiding them along and explaining different details to them, help them kind of build their, their brand new structure of a church. And of course, in doing that, they, they had to somehow gain entry in the first place and come to be trusted. And so they would have to have sounded like the faith. Would have had to have spoken it with their lips. So they got in, and they're still in, and they're still hidden, and Jude's trying to expose them now to the church, trying to kind of like take the mask off. They are those who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And much of the rest of this book then has a lot of heat in it. He's talking about their condemnation. And as we'll look at this going forward, we'll notice he's not telling us to condemn them. He's telling us they're condemned. So don't join them. That's a, that's a careful posture we'll have to notice several times here. This is not telling us to do something. It's alerting us to the fact and warning us away. Prophetic utterances and prophetic writings that we'll see, biblical and otherwise, all have shown that people that worm their way into the people of God for destructive purposes get destroyed by God who cares for his sheep. God's pointed this out constantly in the past. He's predicted it for the future. It's common. It's condemned. Don't go there with them. So, so right away, before we even know what they're talking about, which is actually kind of helpful because he's going to get into a couple of specifics, but, but never mind those specifics. If there are other specifics that someone else is deviating from the faith on, the same warning applies. Before we even know what they're saying or teaching, here's this loud, clear warning. Just as in 1 Peter, which we finished a couple weeks ago, we are alerted and constantly reminded that we're aliens and strangers in the world and there's opposition out there and we're told how to deal with that. Here in Jude, he's alerting us there's actually a problem in here also on the inside of the walls. Watch out for it. Well, how are we going to watch out for it? If, if they're so good that the wolves are wearing sheep's clothing and they got in in the first place, how, how, do we, how do we know who we're looking at? Well, there's a little bit of help in the next point. I'm going to kind of clarify a couple of details. But before we go to that, it's helpful just to hang on this word contend and think about that. That's, that's the main point here is Fight. 
fight for the faith, the true gospel. What does that look like? Certainly, if we think about our situation today and try to apply this to to ourselves, certainly we could use the language of false teacher and commit ourselves to watching out for such people. We can and must take steps to check the doctrine, check the, the lives of people who would be elders and pastors in our church. We have to do that. We should do that. We do that. We should watch for those who are teaching life training classes and teaching youth, teaching small groups. This is one way that we contend for the true faith is we, we look for and, and require that our leaders and teachers believe it, understand it, believe it, and teach it. So we have to, on the front end, go through a vetting process, and then all throughout, we always have to remain alert, checking. And, and a teacher shouldn't be bothered by that. A teacher should say, like, not hey, I'm the the one in charge here, listen to me, but should say, actually, this is the one in charge here. Listen to it and check me against it. A teacher should be okay with that. That's our job. Certainly, that is an important and probably the first way we should think about contending for the faith is making sure that the people who teach and influence hold to the faith first and then continually. However, we realize, of course, that false teachers are dangerous because they are the vehicle that carries falsehood into the city. The teacher is not the problem. The falsehood is the problem. It gets smuggled in somehow or another through this this wolf who's come in. But the real problem is the falsehood, the fight is about a message, not a person. Which might make us think about something else. A lot of us here won't tolerate any sort of error or any sort of deviation, any sort of alternative to the true faith coming from the pulpit But are we less careful with what we tolerate coming from our earbuds? You're being taught there, too. Sometimes even in this building. What's coming from your Instagram and your TikTok feed? What are you learning? What are you being influenced by with the conversations with you, have, you have with your friends over lunch or the business conference where you're told what your professional and life goals should be and how it is that you can get there? Stuff comes into us through all these other avenues, a message. You are being taught something about what life should look like and what good is, what you should value, how you should be, who you should be, what your identity is. And then you bring that in past the gate. As you come and sit in a small group and you discuss and you banter about and stuff gets traded back and forth. I, I, you, what, are you accusing me of being a false teacher? No, 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 no. I'm accusing you perhaps, accusing you perhaps, maybe being the Trojan horse that brings the message in unwittingly. Let's it into your own head and then carries it yourself in. 
Don't hear the accusation. Don't hear the finger pointing that. Hear the alert. Hmm. I need to guard what comes from the pulpit. Yeah, but if I've guarded what comes from the pulpit, I might not be done because I need to guard the message in the church that comes in in any way whatsoever and gets bantered back and forth between us. Because we have to be about the truth of the true gospel. Speaking that and hearing that and leaning into that. Not tolerating falsehood, however it arrived. It's about a message, not about just noticing who the false teachers are and getting rid of them. Getting rid of falsehood is what's important. So we have to be careful with all the kinds of messages that we platform, not only on this platform, but on every other platform that we might sit in front of and listen to. Contend for the true gospel of the true grace by watching falsehood wherever it might come into the church. But I think there is something even more important for us to consider. So we can look at the false teachers, we can look at those who are official leaders, and we can look at the message as it's circulating in the church. But here's something else, which is going to, I think, make us think a little bit, but is really where we should lean. I kind of say those first two points there because we have to. We have to. But hear this one. I mentioned a quote before once. I don't remember when, a long time back. And I think I credited it to Tim Keller. I think actually he was quoting somebody else, but I don't know who. Anyway, there's, there's a provenance for you. The quote, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shorten and then I'm going to work with the quote to kind of help us understand it. This is not exactly what the quote is, but, but hear it and process this. What the heart finds beautiful and loves, you could also say what the heart finds pleasurable and attractive, what the heart finds beautiful and loves. The will longs for and wants. And the mind then eventually figures out how to approve of and sanction. Let me say that again. I'll say it slowly. If you're writing it down and you want to think about it, it's, it's thought-provoking. This is how we work, we human beings. What the heart finds beautiful and loves, the will longs for and wants. Get that. We don't really want what someone else tells us is right as much as we want what we ourselves find to be attractive and lovely and good. What my heart finds beautiful, what my heart loves, that's what I want. And then second step, what I want, what I really want and long for, eventually my mind figures out a way to approve of that and to sanction it so I can go get it and satisfy my longings. That's the human condition. That's how we work. By God's design. 
We're driven by longings for what is lovely. And true, for some time, especially if there is social pressure applied, for a while we can behave, grudgingly perhaps, but we can behave contrary to what we deeply long for, convincing ourselves that it's too costly to do otherwise. The price to go against what everybody else is doing is is too high. Or convincing ourselves that the benefits of conformity to the norm outweigh the benefits of satisfying my deepest longings. We we do that, but there's a pressure that builds within us. What I really, really, really want, what I I really, ah, but everybody else is, so I must. It's my duty, or it's, it's what everybody else does, and so I should, or people will really punish me if I don't. I'll be ostracized. We can hold that for just a little while, but there is a pressure that builds within us. I want, but I have to. It creates a inside. So here we face a have to. Contend for the faith. Here's what it is given to you from outside. Fight for that. That's what we should do. But we live in a world now, brothers and sisters, where the social pressure to hold on to that faith is being removed and, in fact, reversed. All around us, and we will not be, here's this, here's this call, this command, we will not, we can't hope to successfully hold on to the gospel in here just by telling ourselves, one another, you must. It's a command right there in the Bible. Do it. You should, and I'm going to make sure that no one else teaches contrary to that, at least out loud. We can't succeed like that. What the heart finds beautiful and loves, that's where we all start. By God's design. You see, you see the problem with that? When, when I find something beautiful and lovely contrary to what I should, there's this angst. But by God's, God made us that way. God made us to start with, uh, I'm driven by something that I long for in my heart, something I find beautiful, because God knows that the God of grace is the most beautiful, most lovely, most heart-satisfying reality we will ever meet if you meet him. If you meet him. God made us that way because he knows. I, I, made you, I made you a flat surface on the wall with two prongs because I know, I know what fits there. I know what fits there best. He knows that the God of grace is beautiful. We in here will do best to contend for the gospel of grace by doing our best to soak in it and drink it up and savor it and be satisfied with it. In other words, you do best to to fight for this faith by living in and enjoying this faith. Not by commanding conformity to it. To enjoy the goodness of God, to enjoy the satisfaction of our souls, to read the Bible looking for him, to reflect upon all of his promises and see, oh God, by, by prayer, open our eyes to his 
to, to, to see the blessing of all the promises that God's lined up for you, to see the beauty of his salvation for you, to see, to see the wonder of the identity he has made true of you, to see yourself as his servant called and in his arms loved and kept. That's the only inoculation against all the false op- offers of the world. A command will never cut it. The command shows us where our duty is. The law points out what we should do. And the grace of God in truth, the true grace, leads us to a place where we we feel it. And what my heart sees is beautiful. My will then says, yep. And then my mind says, I'm going to hold that. It comes from the heart And the gospel of God's true grace is the thing that changes the heart. Law, command, can't. I'm preaching about an impossibility here. If you trace that back and slow it all down, what I just said was, a command doesn't work. You have to enjoy it. Well, well, you kind of, that's actually circular, that's baiting the question. You said, my heart has to enjoy what my heart enjoys. Yeah, that's why it's a gift of grace from God. This contending is actually, we have to look to God and say, help. You, God, have to work on me in grace and align my heart with what's beautiful and true, what's really beautiful and true, because I am easily deceived I'm prone to wander. Help. The command here is to contend. We have to fight for the faith. And we certainly must clarify what our leaders and teachers believe. And we certainly have to watch the messages that we bring in from other sources unwittingly, perhaps. But brothers and sisters... The real issue is do you enjoy this God? Do you? He's the beautiful one and the lovely one. And if you don't enjoy him, you're missing out. If you don't enjoy him, all this is, all this is, is, a, is a collection of, of commands and laws. And you're missing life. He says, and isn't this beautiful? When Jesus comes, when, when this Lord comes to the earth, this Lord comes to the earth, His approach to us is not. This is the truth. Line up behind it and hold on to it. Well, there is that for sure, because it's the truth. But his approach to us is, are you weary and heavy laden? Then come and find rest for your souls. Come and find I'm the God of grace and I'm beautiful. That's his approach to us, because that's how we work. Come and find in the God of grace the beauty, the loveliness, the satisfaction that your soul, that your heart is 
longing for. And that can be satisfied by, that can satisfy your mind. Contending begins in the heart, not just in controlling the message. And we have to contend for the truth of the message. So, second point then, which is shorter. A couple of specifics about how that message gets turned sometimes, commonly. Here's the second observation. God's true grace is freedom from, not an excuse for, immorality and disobedience. God's true grace is freedom from, not an excuse for, immorality and disobedience. Continuing in verse 4, These certain ones have secretly wormed their way into the church. How can you identify them? Well, verse 4 gives us a description. They are ungodly people, it says. Given that they're in the church, that obviously does not mean they deny God. They certainly affirm God. Ungodly means irreligious, worldly, even sacrilegious, as opposed to reverent and God-fearing. So right away, with the first word here, the picture that Jude paints for us is that of a person who intellectually knows and can probably state and affirms a bunch of biblical truth. Knows a lot of things. But the person of God, his being, does not sit heavy on such a one. I don't mean heavy like burdensome. I mean heavy like weighty, important. They do not revere him. Do not fear him properly. That is, they are not awed by him and overwhelmed by him and captured by him and moved by him and dependent on him like a person who's captured by the grace of God would be. So they speak orthodox truth about him. But their lip, with their lips, but their hearts are far from him and very close to the world. They live like and they have values of the world, and so their lives are morally in rebellion against God. They are ungodly. So you can have a person who knows a whole bunch of biblical truth and affirms it who is ungodly. Right there. And you can see it if you look. What it probably eventually looks like, this is very common, it wouldn't be the only way ungodliness would show itself, but it, it is common today, and it was common in Jude's day. That's the problem that he's writing to. Continuing in the verse, it would look like, to use Bonhoeffer's phrase, cheap grace. Grace that is a rationale for, an excuse for sin. In particular, he writes, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. It's particularly related to sexual morals, sexual desires and behaviors, but it could be expanded to include other things that would give sensual pleasure beyond just sex. Some sort of emotional pleasure to it. If it makes one feel good physically or emotionally, there's sensuality involved there, and that just makes a ton of sense.
makes a ton of sense when you think about it. Did I just get lost there? Can you hear me? If you think back to what I was just talking about a couple minutes ago, what the heart finds beautiful and lovely and attractive, that's what we pursue. And that's what, by, that, by God's design, that's what we are like. We, we've, we are that way because God is the most beautiful, most lovely, most attractive reality that we will meet if we meet him. But if you don't, and you set that aside, sensual pleasure is the next best really good substitute. That's why the world is flat out consumed with the pursuit of sensuality. It doesn't know God. We use sex to sell hamburgers and car tires because sex sells, because we are wired that way. We, setting aside God, the next best alternative is something sensual and often something sexual. It appeals to us. It, it, it promises us pleasure. As I said, very often something sexual, but, but the word is broader. It, sensual is just something that appeals to our senses and makes us feel feel good. That's, that's how the world works. And then sometimes when that gets inside the church, because again, that's what we're talking about, we're not really concerned with how the world works. When that then gets inside the church, it often meets up with some sort of spiritual cover to make it look okay. Jude writes about the perverting or the, the twisting of grace. Put grace in quotes there if you want. The mistaken idea that the gospel and, and God's grace, when it's at work, what it means is that everything is always fine. The mistaken idea. That where grace is at work, it means that everything is always fine. God would want me to feel good, wouldn't he? He, he made me to, to know pleasure and delight and, and rest in life, how I define pleasure and rest. And, and if it feels good to me, then certainly God would say, yes, go do that. Because he's the God of grace. He's, he's kind to me. He wants me to know pleasure. Or like the Corinthians might say, all things are permissible, right? Under grace. Or if it is sin, maybe uh, I could do some things wrong, I guess. But God forgives all sin because I'm under grace. And God's a forgiving God. As somebody once said, that's his job, right? And so everything always goes. I'm a Christian under grace. The opponents of the faith have always wanted to, to mischaracterize this faith as being that sort of a faith. Paul dealt with it in Romans. Some inside the church have wanted that to be the case too because then we have room to maneuver and do anything that we please, and then it all comes out in the end okay. Cheap grace, hollow grace, false grace. Some deliberately teach it, and some of us actually live it. That's not true. That's not true. The true grace that is at the core of the true gospel, this faith, 
Write down Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, if you want to look at a very clear statement of this. The true grace that is at the core of the true gospel about how God saves us by grace from sin tells us that grace saves us from the penalty and then also teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives. That's Titus 2, 11 and 12. Grace isn't a license for sin. It's a remedy for sin. Grace doesn't, doesn't let us wander into. It leads us away from. God who is good to us, God who loves us, God who cares for us, has worked in grace not just to save us from sin's penalty, but to steer us away, to steer us into the path in which life can be found. When grace falls on a person, when the true grace falls on a person, what we find is not that I am cozying up to sin, but that I am, I am open-eyed and seeing what sin is and seeing its destruction and am myself wanting to get away from it and then am helped to get away from it as God moves me by his spirit towards righteousness. Grace sanctifies not permits. Judas warned us that that path that leads to destruction is the path that also says, go ahead, God forgives. Now when I was getting ready to, when I was writing this out and thinking about getting ready to preach it, I kind of thought, a lot of the folks that I'm going to be talking to already get this. And, and then I thought, but maybe they don't. Because I don't really know. I don't really know what's going on behind. And I also don't know what's really going to happen a year from now. Because certainly something is always true. Wherever a person finds themselves in a year, started somewhere before that year, maybe today or last week. I don't, I don't really know. You may not know. So perhaps what you need from this, maybe, you, maybe you're being poked in some way that you didn't expect. I don't know. But maybe what you need from this is, is just, this is, a, this is another reinforcement on the bulwark that's already, I already want that, I already agree with that, I already hold that, so there's just reinforcement. And a reminder that when the, the sensuality comes along and reaches out for you and grabs you, that you must say no to it. Comma saying yes to the God of true grace, who is the satisfaction of your soul, he promises and has proven. Jot that down. Maybe you need it a year from now. I don't know. The grace that is the core of the true gospel frees us from sin is not a license to move into sin. It's the remedy
And then also the final phrase, these ones deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the Christ, the Messianic King, and he is our Lord and our Master. With three different words, Jude has said, he is in charge, not us. And yet this is denied, Jude says. Surely not in a theological sense, not in a formal sense. There's no way they could have become in, insiders in the church by, by openly denying, yeah, we don't think Jesus is Lord. That wouldn't have happened. It's affirmed with the lips. It's denied with the life. To live not concerned to obey the Lord in all things, whatever it is that he commands. To live not concerned to obey him is to deny him and to live autonomously under self-rule. That's the natural condition of the ungodly one who lives in pursuit of sensual self-satisfaction, a law unto himself or herself. So again, this is almost too obvious to bother stating, but here it is. That's completely unacceptable. The grace of God that comes in the true gospel is a grace that frees us from self-rule, frees us to submit to him, frees us from being our own lords and and moves us to see him and his decrees as the path of life. This is obviously wrong to deny him as master and Lord and Christ. And Jude doesn't write us to write this to teach us that's wrong. He's alerting us to the tendency. Warning us away from it. So it's worth asking then, do, do you see that tendency? even in you, or around you, and, and those that you are near? Is it enticing you in some way? And, and the place where it's enticing you, if you look, it's most likely behind some sin that is very tempting and very promising. It's most likely behind something that part of you kind of thinks is beautiful and lovely, would be fun and good. Something that, that you'll probably be able to do without being confronted or to grab a hold of without anybody seeing. The temptation then is, you, you know, but the temptation then is just kind of like set him aside for a moment and pursue what you want to. I'll come back later. And he'll forgive me because I'm under grace. You probably haven't ever written that down in your journal but are you being drawn along, lured along that way? Just ask yourself, are you? Where might you be? A long time ago, I worked in a, in a sandwich restaurant. With, and I, I, was a young, I was a young guy and a new Christian, so I, I barely knew what was going on. And the manager of this sandwich restaurant was a Christian, and... 
he and I would talk, and he would actually kind of you know, give me some, some help in my, my new faith. And, and then one day we were talking about some things, and he kind of like got a little more open with me, and he told me about the woman at the bank across the street and down one storefront that he had an affair with. And she still worked there, and he still saw her regularly. And he lived like 45 minutes away from the sandwich shop. And I asked him, I thought, I'm a new Christian, I don't know what's up, but do you think you should like, get a different job somewhere? Like closer to home and further away from her? So you don't see her like multiple times every day? And his answer, I don't remember exactly what he said, but his answer was kind of like, eh, yeah, but I like this job. It's, it's a good job. He's a manager of a sandwich shop, like 45 years old manager. I mean, he could have got another job somewhere else. It would have been just as good. And I thought, I think the Bible says flee from sexual sin. I don't know. I'm new, maybe. But I think there's something there about flee about get away from and you seem to be like trying to stand like right next to as often and as long as you can I'm not sure that's good but I'm new I'll back out I think that he was dabbling with some of these things I don't really know what was going on behind I don't even really know that the affair was over I don't know anything and I don't know anything about where you are. But are you dabbling with some of these things? Are you considering how to navigate? I want something. It's very appealing. It's wrong. How can I forget that for a little bit? I'll come back later. Because I can't cut off Jesus. I, I'm a Christian. I can't set that aside. If that's you, wake up. If that's you, wake up. The path that is awful, coming up in the following verses, the path that is awful is the path in verses 3 and especially verse 4 described as the one on whom the person of God does not sit heavily, who rationalizes grace to pursue sensuality and says no to the Lordship of Jesus. Don't do that. Instead, contend for the true gospel of God's true grace in you, in yourself. Not by saying, I should but by seeking to satisfy yourself with the God who is gracious and the God who is good, the God who loves you. Remember, beloved, in him, talked this last week, beloved in his arms, under his wings. Don't run away. Don't walk away and say, I'm going I'm I'm to count on, I'm going to bank on, I'm going to presume upon the love of God while I'm walking off away from him. Come back into his arms, under his wings, under his lordship. And what you'll find there is the satisfaction that your soul was made for and that you're longing for, his good care for you and his love for you even now. 
and in the eternity that is promised to you. He is your Savior from sin and your Lord and the delight of your heart, honest. Let me pray. Father, would you help us? Wherever we are, whatever we're looking at, whatever we're dealing with, I don't know what you do. So help us. Alert us if at the moment some of us in some way are in danger, being tempted. Alert us. And if not now, Lord, then reinforce us for when that comes in the future. You've delivered to us a beautiful, beautiful gospel about a beautiful grace from a beautiful God. Help us to see you and enjoy you. We pray for that because you're the only one who can make that happen. Please do make it happen. Fill our hearts with you. Spirit of God, move us to pursue, to love, and to know you. Help, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.